There's another one you don't want to hear. Frankly, the drive. Hello and welcome to the Power Chord Hour podcast. As always, I'm your host, Anthony Merchant, and I hope you enjoyed uh, the episode a couple days ago that we released with uh, Armor for Sleep frontman Ben Jorgensen. Uh, That was a lot of fun to do. And, you know, I was sitting here thinking, you know, now we have all these guests and we put them on, you know, both the podcast and the radio show. But, you know, we've only really been doing the podcast here for a few months and we've been doing the radio show for four years, so I have a bunch of interviews that, you know, really only aired on the show once or twice, you know, some are on our YouTube page, but, you know, not maybe not heard as, uh, you know, they're, they're not as readily available as uh, some of the later, you know, the latest interviews that we've been doing. So that would be fun to put some of the uh, best ones out, kind of out of the uh, poem from the Power Chord Hour vault, if you will, and uh, kind of do a throwback episode, you know, not even a, a new per se episode, but a throwback episode for you for, you know, an interview that you maybe you never heard. And, you know, maybe if you did before, maybe you enjoyed it and uh, would like to hear it once more. So, you know, everyone's kind of stuck in the house. I know right now and everything's kind of weird. So, you know, why not? Why not have some entertainment? Um, it, it definitely seems like people are listening to podcasts, which is I mean, it sucks what's going on. Um, it is it is cool to see so many people uh, checking out the podcast lately, which is nice. I mean, once again, I wish it was under, uh, you know, like like better circumstances or something, though. But, you know, to keep you some company, I have tonight for you a uh, interview that I did back. It's funny. I did it in I want to say the date was like December 20th, 2018. It was like it was right before Christmas. So, yeah, it was like the 20th, I think. And uh, I did it then and then it aired. It was our first episode of 2019. So then it ended up airing like a couple weeks later. Um, Because, you know, we had a Christmas episode and then a best of 2018 episode, so I waited to air it a couple weeks. But uh, I talked to legendary producer Michael Beinhorn, who uh, is a multi-platinum producer. He is a Grammy award-winning producer. I mean, I could sit here and give you the list of everything he's worked on, but that's going to take, like, 10 minutes. But, uh, you know, just kind of a quick rundown of, like, like some of his biggest records that he has uh, produced and engineered and, you know, worked on throughout the years in 90s. I mean, including in the 90s. He worked on, like, every big rock record in the 90s. He produced Soul Asylum's Grave Dancers Union, Holes, Celebrity Skin, uh, Soundgarden, Super Unknown. He did The Violent Femmes, Why Do the Birds Sing, Social Distortions, White Heat, White, White, uh, <clears throat> sorry, White Light, White Heat, White Trash. Uh, he did a low... He did Love Battery, Far Gone. Um, I mean, he did Ozzy Osbourne's Osmosis. He worked on uh, Red Hot Chili Peppers, Mother's Milk, and the Uplift Mofo Party Plan. Uh, He also, one of the most interesting ones, and I wish we would have talked about it um, in this interview, and we really never got to it, but he co-wrote Herbie Hancock's uh, Rocket, which, I mean, is amazing for so many different reasons. But, I mean, also the crazy thing to me is it was so early on in his career that I'm not even entirely sure, like, you know, how he kind of got connected with Herbie or not. It's something I wish, which I'd love to have him on again. I mean, this is honestly, this was so much fun. Like, this is this is one of those guys who, I mean, just, producers are really fun to interview. I had Stephen Bradley on back in uh, February on the uh, podcast. And if you haven't heard it yet, go back and check it out. It's a great uh, interview with him. And, uh, you know, right now he's promoting his uh, his solo record, but he's also a producer and engineer. And, I mean, 
you know, when you talk to people like that, it's cool because you get all these stories. Like, you know, if you talk to someone from a band, you get stories from that specific band. Whereas you talk to a producer, they got stories about all those bands. You know what I mean? So it's like, you know, maybe, maybe the singer of, of, I don't know, like, like say, say Mark Hoppus, say you talk to Mark Hoppus, he has stories of Blink-182, but if you talk to Steve Kravak or Stephen Bradley, you know, same, same guy, if you, if you haven't heard it, you know, it's just, uh, uh, Stephen Bradley is what he goes under for his solo music. But anyways, he has stories about Blink-182, but then he also has stories of MXPX, Less Than Jake, you know, Homegrown, Tsunami Bomb, like Wayne Kramer, like, you know, when you, when you do a job like that, you end up, I, I feel like, I feel like you just get a lot of really, really neat stories. Not that musicians don't, but you just, I don't know, I feel like you get even more. So I always love talking to producers, and I mean, I could have talked to Michael for hours, and he's definitely someone I want to have back on. I mean, we could go on forever. And I mean, he produced so many albums, I mean, we hardly even scratched the surface, you know, it's it's just hard with someone like that, you know, you only, you only have so much time in an interview a lot of times, and, you know, to get to their entire career, you know, if they've been doing it for a while, I mean, Michael, like I said co-wrote rocket you know herbie hancock's rocket and that was back in i believe 1982 so he's been at it for a while but i mean huge huge production career um and you know we get into that but i mean it is amazing he's one of those guys where even if you don't know the name if you go look through your record collection he's worked on at least one or two records in there you know just just one of those guys where you know you may not know you may not know the name off the top of your head but trust me, he has had he has had an impact on the music that you listen to and the music that you like. So uh, I'm gonna play that for you right now. And you know, thank you so much for checking out the Power Chord Hour podcast. You know, stay connected with the show. We're online, and including lately, I mean, I'm just like with everyone else. I mean, kind of stuck in the house here. And uh, so, I mean, I think I've been posting even more and, you know, just talking to listeners and whatnot. So hit me up at Power Chord Hour. That is our handle on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, or on YouTube, SoundCloud, Spotify. And uh, hit me up, PowerChordHour at gmail.com. You know, if you listen to the radio show, I take song requests. You can hit me up there. Tell me what you want to hear on the show. You know, I'd love to hear. I love having guests on the show. Let me know who you would like to hear me talk to. Um, You know, all that good stuff. Hit me up there. And uh, now here is a little throwback episode for you going back to last year and then I guess even a little bit further back. So like I said, it was originally originally recorded like December 20th, 2018 and then aired around like January 3rd, 2019. And uh, it is my conversation with multi, multi-platinum multi producer Michael Beinhorn right here on the Power Chord Hour podcast. Right now on the Power Chord Hour, we're talking to multi-platinum producer Michael Beinhorn. Michael has been working with bands such as Hole, Social Distortion, Soul Asylum, The Violent Femmes, and many, many more in his career. He's recently started offering online pre-production services, so we're going to talk a little bit about that, as well as his four decades of producing. Michael, how are you today? I'm wonderful, thanks. How are you? Good. So, I mean, to start off, I mean, like I mentioned, you've been in the business now for four decades. Um, Do you just want to give us, like, a quick rundown how your producing career got started, how you got into all of this? Um, (laughs) yeah, I mean, I kind of lapsed into it really like everything else. I mean, it wasn't anything that was kind of pre-planned. It was nothing that I had any ambitions toward. It was just, it, it it just kind of picked me basically. I made myself available and it sort of showed up that way. Like I started playing in a band after five years, we somehow managed to produce a record and co-write with uh, Herbie Hancock, and that record was really big. And then I stopped working with that particular uh, group of artists, and I went off on my own. And um, 
four years after that, I wound up working with a band called the Red Hot Chili Peppers. And, you know, the, the restroom there is history. <laughs> that's, I mean, that's, that's quite a way to get in. I mean, even, even starting with uh, Herbie Hancock. And the, the interesting thing to me is, I mean, with all, with all your credits and everything, you, you didn't, like, grow up with aspirations to be a producer or anything? No, no, I was, I, I, I can't say it was the furthest thing from my mind, but it just wasn't anything that was on my radar at all. So I mean, be- you know, before that, I know, I know, like you said, you were in a band and everything. I mean, so you were, you were never into like the behind the scenes part. You were always just kind of, you were the player. You were the guy on the record, more, more or less. Yeah, and, I, and even funnier is the fact that I couldn't really play. <laughs> oh, oh, okay. So that that also goes. So you're not like classically trained or anything either. You you're really self taught in all of this. I I had some piano lessons when I was younger, but essentially I'm an autodidact. You know, that's where it all came from. I took synth lessons when I was in like my late teens. So I learned how to operate a modular synthesizer. And then I think I'd say conceptually, a lot of what I what I do kind of comes from that methodology. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, for the most part, it's pretty much I, I just I just learned as I went, essentially. Really? And um, yeah, that's that's it. So, I mean, in, in your experience with working with bands, I've always kind of wondered this. Is it easier for you to produce a band that is, say, kind of more new, maybe looking for their sound than an established act? Like, I mean, just just kind of one example. I know, like, working with Social Distortion, I mean, a band like that, who was a band for almost 20 years beforehand, already kind of had an established sound. Do you find it harder to, like, you know, convey ideas and kind of give recommendations for, like, older, more established bands? Is it easier to do that with younger bands, do you think? Kind of give them direction? Um, I think, I, I don't think that there's like a hard, fast rule that kind of binds that. Uh, you know, it really depends on the personalities. Um, you know, with, with Social Distortion, I think, you know, they were they were really open. Mm-hmm. And Mike was ready, they were all ready to work extremely hard to do that. You know, I mean, I've been in some situations where people are incredibly stubborn and intractable and don't want to do and either don't want to do anything because they've just been doing it for too long and they just feel like doing things the way they do it or they don't like being told what to do <laughs> by anybody you know that you, you know so i take on a position of being more like an authority figure but fortunately that's been the exception rather than the rule Good, good. I mean, like when they come in like that, yeah, do you have to like kind of take them out of that place? Because that seems like that could really like ruin a recording session and maybe even bleed through on the record. You know, if you can tell, okay, this guy is disinterested. He's, you know, he's kind of going through the motions now. You kind of have to do that as a producer sometimes, like break into them and get them kind of into that. I I don't know if you want to call it a zone, like to actually, you know, record and everything. Um, a lot of times that has to be done very passively. You know, I, I, I think from my perspective, I found that trying to kind of jump in, especially with someone who is who's resistant mm-hmm. to any kind of outside influence, um, that there, that it's it can be very difficult, even if you come to them with like an immense amount of enthusiasm for what they do. Because some people just look at that they look at that with suspicion, like you're trying to blow smoke up their ass to get to essentially get them to do something that they don't want to do. So, you know, it depends, again, on the personality of the individual you're working with. I mean, I've just found that in some cases I've had to be a passive 
contributor in that case, which is it's, it's very difficult to explain how that would work. But it's almost like feeding people ideas and making them think that they're their ideas and not mine. Do you, do, you, do you feel like that's part of the job or when that comes up, if you kind of went like, you know, this isn't my job. This isn't what I was hired for. It's all my job, man. The only thing that's <laughs> the only thing that's not my job is I think there's a certain point where you wind up taking on too much stuff as a producer. And I feel that when I'm just when I'm being encumbered with all kinds of stuff, that's that, that really kind of draws my my attention away from the process of making the best recording possible, then I, then I'm going to probably, I'm going to draw back and say, I'm not, I'm not doing this. So, you know? but as far as the psychological aspect of it, as far as, you know, and as far as trying to get the best performances out of people, to me, it's kind it's, it's a case of, you know, by all any and all means necessary. So like I mentioned earlier, you've recently started offering a, a really cool uh, pre-production service. You want to tell us a little bit about that and what services you're offering? Yeah, well, um, on the, the most basic level, it starts with song analysis, which is essentially breaking down a person's music into, you know, basically disassembling it and kind of identifying not just the parts that are working, but the aspects of it that aren't working, because that's the key to making the song better. Now, that's not to say that you can take a song that essentially, that, that is essentially not great, and making it great that's the, i would say that that's an absolute impossibility but it does guarantee that you can take a piece of music that is that is mediocre but has potential and strip strip all the mediocre elements out to make it a better song and the the, the results from that are pretty staggering especially when people see how it works and, and this is based on this is based on work that i've done over the past like 35 years you know i've seen this type of methodology in action and how it can really alter people's work uh and i've been able to I, i've been able to get like, essentially every record i've worked on after a certain point had this particular approach kind of built into it um so people who who use this service are essentially using the same the, the same dynamics that were applied to records like Super Unknown and things like that. Um, you know, and from there it extrapolates into project analysis, pre-production, executive production, which is more overarching, but, um, uh, you know, but incorporates all of the, uh, all the other aspects. Um, in some cases, I'll wind up going to, to where people are working to rehearse with them to kind of, you know, to review what's happening. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, it's, 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 it's kind of, it's, I guess it's sort of, it's kind of a la carte, <laughs> you know, um, and it's, but there's some basic building blocks to it. And, and I, I really did it because I, I, I've noticed that there's such a lack of emphasis on these things now. And I feel very strongly that that is a major reason why a lot of people nowadays aren't making records of this of the kind of quality that they could and should be doing. I mean, there's no there's no deficit in creative people in the world, but you know, I, I, a lot of people now are, are are making comments like, "Oh, music isn't that as good these days. Records aren't as great these days," and a lot of it has to do with the simple fact that people aren't doing the the, the right kind of prep work. You know, I mean, prep work doesn't just come from a bunch of guys 
in a rehearsal studio, especially, you know, especially since that that's been, you know, that, that I think that as a, as a valuable kind of tool in and of itself hasn't really kind of yielded results for like many, many years. And that's, that's essentially because a lot of the onus for that fell on to people who are in more of a production role to kind of help out, to provide like an, to, to provide an objective um, input. And that, and that's been stripped away because budgets have really kind of have evaporated from the recording process. And I felt it was time to really bring some, to, to bring this stuff back and but to make it available to as many people as possible. And I mean, you know, like, like as, as we've went on and it makes it more accessible for, you know, bands to like self-produce, record them, you know, stuff themselves. Do you think then that that's been lost? Like the idea that, you know, a, a producer is not just someone who like hits record or goes, okay, here, you know, here's your guitar tone. It's like, do you think that that a lot of modern music is maybe missing something because it becomes almost too insular, maybe where there's no outside source? You know, like you're talking about, like people aren't realizing that, hey, you don't write these classic albums just but you know a band goes in and writes twelve classic songs. You need to like work on this. You need that outside perspective. I mean, do you think that's what's missing a lot? Oh in- man, this is this is the point that I'm trying to make. This is exactly the point I'm trying to make. I think. You know, I mean, and, and it's obvious, like you, all you have to do is go back to um, demo recordings of some of your favorite bands. Like I, I, I like to collect um, um, outtakes, studio outtakes of bands like Led Zeppelin, the Beatles, you know, artists like like those who, who have done some of the most seminal recordings of all time. But it's it's not because I enjoy listening to different versions of of their songs. It's mainly because I like to see the process. I like to see the process of how they worked on certain certain pieces of music, and you can hear them in the studio, like hammering away at stuff and hammering and hammering and hammering until they got something right. Now I notice that these days, when people have a song, they might walk work on it a little bit, but after that, they're kind of like, well, we're done, you know. And it's time to record it without really taking a without having the ability to, t- to, to take a step back, because honestly, as a songwriter, one of the hardest things in the world is to be objective about your own music. I mean, that's just common sense. It's absolute common sense that as the as the creator, it's very difficult for you to have complete perspective, especially on something that other people are going to have to listen to and decide whether or not they like. You know, so it yeah. makes perfect sense to have someone else come in and to be able to identify things that perhaps you may have missed. Or in the case of, of songwriters, many of whom I've experienced this with, who are actually very sensitive and understand at, and, and, and actually can feel where a piece of music they've written isn't working, but are unable to, to figure out why or really to be able to, to, to describe what's, what's wrong. Mm-hmm. To have a person in my position identify that exact thing and, and, and actually give them the relief of knowing that they were right all along. There was something wrong, but hey, here's a solution. You know, I mean, the, the, the possibilities are so vast for this type of thing. And yeah, you know, I do honestly, I believe wholeheartedly that the absence of this ability to be introspective, and also to be able to to um, have access to other people who can who are professionally 
uh, skilled at being able to analyze music. I, I feel that this that this has uh, been a tremendous um, detriment to people who are trying to record popular music. And uh, that's one of the main reasons that I'm doing this. So do you feel too, I mean, like in, in modern day, does the producer, does that, do you feel like that title kind of gets lost too? Because once again, like I said, you know, you can do it, you can do so much on your own. Doesn't mean you should, but it's like, you know, I, I feel like people can throw around the word producer more and yet, yet they're lacking so much of the stuff you're talking about. I mean, you, you, you have this, you basically have a set of skills, it sounds like, going in that, you know, you, you just can't have when you're writing on your own. You know, you're, you have that inside perspective and you can't look at it from the outside. You're on the inside. There's no way to look at it in a different direction. So, I mean, even like, I mean, looking at your biggest, probably most successful albums you've worked on, I mean, they probably changed pretty drastically then from what bands brought you. You know, talking about pre-production and all that. Like, I'm sure bands didn't just hand in, here's 12 demos, and this thing is going to, you know, this thing's going to go multi-platinum. You had to work on that, didn't you? Yeah, well, there's absolutely no question that the title of producer has been, uh, I, I mean, to, to, <laughs> to, to put it in very, um, I guess, conservative terms, abused <laughs> considerably. <laughs> Um, you know, and I think I, I don't think that it's wrong necessarily for anyone to call themselves a producer if all they are doing is pressing a space bar or telling an artist, here's your guitar sound. I just know that there are many different varieties of producer in the broad spectrum of people who do that. My perception of what a producer is is considerably different than that. Producer, from my perspective, is someone who's a creative collaborator in the artist process, who is there to facilitate a deeper experience for the artist of what the artist is doing himself. Um, as far as records that I've worked on, I mean, I can give you a perfectly good example of um, what you just asked, like on Super Unknown, when I got the initial demos for the album. It was uh, about 11 songs, and I'd say three to four of them were actually recordable. Everything else was, was scrappable. And I had the unenviable task of having to go back to these guys and to say this to them, you know, but that was the reality of the situation. They needed to hear it from somebody because they were in the position to make a great record, but they at that point in time, they weren't going to do it with the material that they had. So they basically had to start, I wouldn't say from scratch, because they had some songs that were that were good, one of which actually became a single. But everything else was pretty much filler. And beyond that, un, you know, the rest of the remaining demos were, were unusable. Um, you know, so they worked for two months and I was constantly providing input and guidance as far as what they were doing. And at the end, we wound up with the material for, you know, for what you know as super unknown. But if the record had been put out that they were planning on making based on the initial demos that I got, you would not recognize that record. Oh, it wow. would not be it would not be the same recording. Oh, no. I mean, most of the songs that are familiar on that record wouldn't even exist. So, I mean, do you feel like sometimes you need to, like, write your record more than once? before the end result i mean you, like when a band comes in then are you basically is that something you have to set up like like okay you're, you're probably going to write this maybe twice you know like like what you bring into me might not even be what the public knows 
Um, I don't really think that that's a conversation to be had until after the music has been reviewed. You know, it's because it's nothing that you can really know for sure. You know, for example, you don't know how many times you're going to have to ask for more songs from an artist uh, until you've had a chance to listen to what they're doing and until they've sent you more stuff. You know, sometimes a a, a batch of demos really kind of identi- identify a, a specific type of trajectory from the artist. Um, you know, is my and that kind of that that's feedback for me because I take that and I go, is this Am I giving this person the right kind of um, input to help steer him in the direction he needs to go? Um, in the case of Super Unknown, for example, like there was a point in time where I got a batch of about 11 or 12 songs from Chris, who was the primary writer on the record. And I realized that he was really veering off in the wrong direction because I had 11 or 12 songs, all of which were pretty average. You know, we were very far away from having the right kind of material at that point for the record. And I, I had to I had to speak with him directly about this and really you know, have a conversation that I think most people would would not want to have, uh, you know, because it really kind of it delves into the sort of like, you know, what are you doing? Why and why are you doing this? Like, what is this for? You know, what are you hoping to achieve here? And that actually, that conversation gave me enough insight to be able to give him the type of input he needed to write the rest of the songs for the record. Now, this doesn't, I have to say, this doesn't always happen. You know, you can't always guarantee that that's going to happen. But at least in this particular instance, it worked out. Yeah, it it sounds like, I mean, part of that success, I mean, like you're saying, if it was an album that we didn't, you know, like, what it started out with was so different. It's like that album more than likely probably no, never would have been big then. It's like you don't, as big as it was too, I mean, it's it's a monster of an album and it sounds like that wouldn't have happened without production, working on things, you know, having those hard conversations you're talking about, things that a producer does, you know, that... that... Nowhere close. Nowhere close. I mean, when, when I, one of the songs in the original, on the first demo that I got was uh, Spoon Man. But that was the only song on that entire batch um, that was, I think actually My Wave was on there too, mm-hmm. um, which I think got released as a single somewhere down the road. But that re- that's, while I really do love that song a lot, it's really not up to the standard of some of the, of the songs that were actually released as singles over the course of the, you know, that record's time uh, post-release. Um, you know, like it really, we had to go through an awful lot to just get it to the right standard material wise before we could even think of going into a recording studio. You know, I I think you brought this up a little bit, um, earlier, but I kind of want to touch on it again. Um, like how, how long can you work on a song before you can tell it it's going to work or not? Like, like. Do you, is it almost instant or do you, do you like try to maybe do everything you can to, you know, obviously someone brings you a song, it's their baby. It's like, how, how long can you tool on it before you just have to go like, you know, I, this song's just not good. It really depends. You know, um, there are, in my experience, it's not very, it's not a very long process. I mean, for one thing, if you have a piece of music that's great, it's going to be pretty obvious to someone at some point. 
mm. you know. And then there are pieces of music that take years sometimes to get honed. I mean, if, for example, if you listen to demos of some Led Zeppelin songs, you can hear the process that they went through where from the point of origin for the music, for the song, to the point where they were, they felt ready to record it to the finished product. Um, you know, I mean, I, it's, it, what's really funny is I have a, um, a demo recording of No Quarter, which is, which is off Houses of the Holy. And um, the version I have is a bossa nova version. <laughs> the song, I believe, was actually conceived as a bossa nova version, which if you listen back to it now, you can hear traces of it because melodically there are things that are very out of place for a rock song like that. Da, 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 da. You know, that break between the, the A section and the chorus. This is the path where no one goes. But the thing is, is that on this on this original demo, the part goes do 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 ba bum ba boom ba bum ba boom do 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 and then it goes into ba 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 ba. So it all makes sense in that format. But they eventually broke it away from that that type of rhythmic approach, and they turned it into a slow rock song. So the traces, the bits and pieces, the artifacts that were left over from the original demo are actually really, really, they, they, they make, they, they kind of give the song a kind of, a kind of flavor that it wouldn't otherwise have had. So very interesting. Yeah. I mean, talking, talking too about your, your work, I mean, the word, the term watershed record gets thrown around a lot and I and I think rightfully so I think you've made a lot of career defining albums I mean we've been talking about Soundgarden Super Unknown you did whole celebrity skin I mean Soul Asylum's Grave Dancers Union obviously their biggest record I mean going into albums like this is it a conscious effort that you're like going in and trying to really like 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 you have a lot running on this these are these are bands that have a lot running on these albums like do you go in feeling a pressure like you're now responsible for trying to bring those, you know, bands to the next level? Or is that not even something you were thinking of, like recording these records? That was something that came later on. Um, my perspective has always been the same. I have to try and make the best possible record I can with these artists. It's not merely a matter of going into a recording studio and getting a body of work out of them, like something that can be exploited. Nowadays, I think the perspective is more let's get a record out so we can tour it for the next year and a half and make a bunch of money off touring. My attitude was always, and it always has been, we have to make the best possible record now. Like this is going to be the best possible piece of work that this artist is capable of. How's that going to happen? What does that look like in terms of like an over, an overriding vision? Um, so, yeah, I mean, and I, and, and I, I do tend to put a lot of pressure on myself to be able to help realize that vision and to at least hold it in my own consciousness and find, you know, and, and find the ways to translate that vision from an abstract concept into a concrete reality. Very nice. So, I mean, you know, right, right now, right now, you're obviously getting started with your pre-production services. You're doing that. Are you working on anything else currently? Um, I'm working on developing a college curriculum with a colleague of mine named Frank Filippetti. Um, 
that's really going to be that, that's going to be an educational platform for people who are interested in engineering and production. Um, but we're we're trying to uh, combine technical aspects of recording education, which most people are familiar with, with more of a philosophical approach, which no one else is really doing. And I feel this is important because I don't think that I've encountered anyone who is involved or who has kind of come through the whole educational system as far as music production goes who really has a clear sense of why they're doing what they're doing. And I just think that's so important amongst, among certain other things. Um, you know, so we want to take a completely different perspective on this, but yeah, I mean, those are, those are essentially my two main focuses at this point. Um, and as you can imagine doing pre doing this kind of work, doing pre-production, it's pretty, it's pretty time intensive because it involves a lot of listening. You know, it's I'd say it probably involves as, at least as much, if not more listening than being in our studio producing a record. You know, I mean, this is this is probably a pretty like broad question. I'm sure a lot of things would would jump in your mind, but it just interests me, you know, since you've been doing this now since the 80s. I mean, you've it'd be an understatement to see to say like how much the music industry has had to change since then also recording technology i mean i'm sure you basically saw it go from analog to digital i mean is there is there like one or two things that really jump out in your head like through your career of like either technological advances or you know just just something something that really changed that that blew you away or kind of caught you off guard <laughs> Oh man, yeah. Like you said, there's so many. Like that, that might uh, be a hard one to to answer, but you know, well, I, I'd like to the pick scope your brain. Is so the scope is so big. Like you know, I mean, because the thing is, is that you can find positives and negatives. Like I remember, at, toward the end of the '90s, standing around with a bunch of people who I regard very highly. Like some of the, I was in a group with some of the the finest producer engineers of in history wow and yeah which i mean i i always just would marvel at how i managed to get get (laughs) get up in such rarefied air when those things would happen but these guys are just standing there laughing about the idea of how anyone could possibly make a rock record using like digital (laughs) (laughs) you know they might have been a little wrong they might have been a little wrong. I mean, these are all guys, by the way, who use Pro Tools now and, you know, who use DAWs. But, the, you know, they were all standing around just laughing riotously, like, how could you possibly do that? Like, it's the wrong sound. It's the wrong sonic combination. You can't, you, you can't, make, you, you can't make guitars and drums sound good on a digital audio workstation, which was certainly true back then. Um, and I mean, admittedly, it does have its own sound, and it's hard to say that it's that it's always the best sound for um, you know for a rock record. I mean, do you but, do you almost feel like during that time too, like you know, you working with that technology, were you guys almost guinea pigs? Because that's the thing; it's like there's so many kinks and stuff to work out. I mean, it do you do you just feel like maybe maybe back then thing like when it started, it it wasn't on par like. If, if that makes sense, you know, digital recording in the beginning, was it, was it, 
was it harder to use then? Like, were their criticisms valid? Do you think in the beginning? Um, I'm not. I I don't disagree with them. I mean, I still feel that. <laughs> I still feel that like that the PCM um, audio in general is not a good is not a good source to record to. It's not an ideal source. Like I would I would choose something else before. Although I've had to use PCM based recording um, devices repeatedly. Um, you know, which, which in turn forced me to go to much higher resolution audio to be able to get the kind of sound that I wanted. Um, but yeah, you know, I mean, necessity forces your hand unless you feel comfortable with the solution that you're given. Most people in this day and age are looking at cost as a factor, but they're also looking at ergonomics, you know, as far as what makes their workflow comfortable and easy. Um, and, and something that's repeatable. And I think that that, that causes people to kind of get stuck in a groove and stay in a very comfortable place. I never enjoyed that. Um, you know, when we made untouchables, the corn record, um, my, they, they wanted a very specialized type of record. And all I could think of was like, we can't possibly record this at normal low res digital. So my feeling was that we had to do everything at the highest res possible, which was a very interesting situation because at that point in time, there were only a few recording devices that were capable of giving me what I wanted in terms of sample rate, and, you know, resolution. Um, so we wound up using a Euphonics R1, which is no longer made because it actually is a dinosaur. And, you know, Pro Tools didn't have a 96K platform back then. So, in, and the R1 didn't really add it. So we had to get this um, Nuendo program by Steinberg, which is, you know, it's, it's, it's known today, but it was the first 96K editing platform that was available. And yeah, I mean, we were at the bleeding edge the whole time and it was, it was pretty agonizing. Um, their interface was bad. Everything was bad. My uh, Frank Filippetti, who was engineering that record, was on the phone with Steinberg, who manufactured um, Nuendo, like every day, like yelling at them. Jeez. <laughs> because, because they just, they, they created this very high resolution recording technology, but they provided a user interface to a computer that was essentially, that, that had like a, um, it had like latency of like five or six or seven milliseconds. Um, I don't even remember what it was, but it wasn't AES. It wasn't even spit-up based. It was just, it was something that was like, that they, they, they figured that they were going to make this high res system and then they were going to market it to people who are bedroom producers. And we were like, then why make 96 K? This is high res audio. Are you crazy? Like they didn't understand. And, And I think that they, they, they could have really cornered the market on their product. Um, which is a shame because I think it's actually superior or at least it was back then. But um, yeah, I mean, it was constant bleeding edge type stuff. But you know what? That's the fun. I mean, to me, to like to be able to kind of aspire to something better, to shoot for something higher than than what's there, to imagine something that can be more, that can be an improvement over what's, I guess, the the norm. That's that you know. That's where you get you you improve your results and you. You know, you have you, you wind up with something that no one else has done before. Well, Michael, this has been, I mean, really fun, really informative. 
I mean, where where can people find you online and get more information on your pre-production services? Stay uh, up to date with you. MichaelBeinhorn.com. All right. And then uh, any, the place. anything else you want to add or promote? Um, no, I think that's my book, of course, Unlocking Creativity. Can't forget that. And that can you uh, find that on your website then? Um, yeah, you can find it on my website on Amazon. Um, it definitely it, it, it digs into a little bit into my philosophy as far as working and recording and creativity. I like it's that a good I, primer. I have to check that out because even I mean even even with us talking to you now, I, I think what I've what I've realized and hopefully listeners realize it you come from a very interesting place where like like you said, you had no background in this, no real aspirations for it, yet you kind of fell in and, and through your own, I think you know, doing trial and error and just working really hard. It, it seems like you've really found a formula that works. So I think that would, that would be very neat to read. And also like, like you mentioned doing the college course, you know, someone who goes at it from a different direction than, you know, I went to school for five years and I, you know, I, I have my pro tools certificate and I have this and that, <laughs> you know, you, you, you come from a more genuine place, but uh, thank you very much for calling in today. It was my pleasure, man. Thank you.